2 Corinthians 5. We're looking at this whole topic of integrity. Integrity. And I might ask you, what is your IQ today? No, not your intelligent quotient. How about your integrity quotient? What's your IQ? Are you a man or woman of integrity? It's critical. It's necessary, especially for spiritual leaders. Ted Eggstrom said this, the world needs men, and I might add women. By the way, I wouldn't just say the world. The church needs men and women who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who do not lose their individuality in a crowd, that's easy to do, who will be honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not not say that they do it because everybody else is doing it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report, in adversity as well as in prosperity, who do, not believe their sh- do, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-heartedness or hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, who say no with emphasis, although the rest of the world says yes. Yeah, we have to have men of integrity in this world, but more importantly, even than that, we have to have men and women of integrity in our church. It's an absolutely critical characteristic. There are so many characteristics that we looked at last week, but, but integrity is the glue. It's the glue that holds everything else together, it, as far as the spiritual characteristics. It's... It holds all the attitudes and actions together. Because you can be, you, you can have some of the other characteristics and have uh, vision and goals and, and strong personality and all that other stuff. But you, if you don't have integrity, it just falls apart. And, and people find out over time. Now again, you might say, what is integrity? Well, it means wholeness. Okay, it means entirety, completeness, complete. In other words, you're not just a show you know, a show, an outward, external. It's what you really are. You're the real deal. Again, when you just see each other on a Sunday morning, we don't know if we're all the real deal. You know, we come in happy, smiley. But are you the real deal? Uh, Integrity means that you're not divided. Or you're not pretending. In other words, without hypocrisy. Again, I would be be referring to morally, ethically, uh, spiritually. Not a hypocrite. You know, remember what a hypocrite was? A hypocrite was one who played in the theater. They put the mask on and played a different part. That was literally what the hypocrite meant in the first century. You know, they'd play this part. They'd play a part. I trust that you're not playing a part, that you're the real deal. Again, people with integrity leaves lives that are consistent with their stated convictions. 
they, they practice what, they're, what they preach. And, and you know who knows it first? Your spouse and your kids. They know whether or not we are men and women of integrity. Um, again, they're honest, sincere, incorruptible. Um, by the way, those type of people have nothing to fear. Proverbs says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Why? Because there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be found out. If you've ever been involved in secret sin, the, the, the problem is, is like, who might find out? Who might find out? Always looking over your shoulder. But see, a man of integrity, a woman of integrity, doesn't have that fear. They're bold as a lion. Why? Because my, my life is an open book. By the way, we're all sinners. <laughs> we all have faults. We all have sins. We all have deceptions. But it's, it's, it's this question. Are you trying to hide your sin or are you saying, Lord, um, you know, I am a sinner. I am on the track to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And uh, I keep falling, but I'm not, I'm not trying to hide. In fact, uh, he even says in James that we should confess our sins to one another, that we might pray for one another. The idea is there's a vulnerability, a transparency. Now again, you see that with a number of people in Scripture. You see it with David, although David had his sins, correct? But it does say in Psalm 78 that he shepherded them, that's Israel, according to the integrity of, the, of his heart. Even, even God himself told Solomon that his father had integrity of heart and uprightness. So, I mean, David was a man who had integrity. See, he wasn't perfect. There was great sins, right? We always go back to David's sins. But again, he, he, but what did he say when he was in the midst of his sins? My bones are drying up. I have lost the joy of my salvation. Lord, I want to walk with you. I'll do anything. I want to walk with you. Because he remembered what it was like, and then he's in sin. See, but it was the heart that said, i got to get back to where... I'm walking with you. Do you feel like that? Do you ever veer and you just say, Lord, I'll do anything. I just want to walk with you. That's why we need the table. In fact, that's why we do it 12 times a year because sometimes we get sloppy and sinful in our ways and we need to be reminded to keep walking back to God, right? You know, Job's a great uh, example of integrity. In Job 1.1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And, and if you put all those four concepts together, that's a man of integrity, right? Upright, blameless, feared God, didn't do evil. Now, what's, what's great about Job is this. And then Satan seeks to test him. He loses his wealth and his children. And what, is it, what does it say in uh, chapter 2 after all that's happened? And and it says this, Then the Lord said to Satan, this is the second time, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Same exact thing. He went through trials and never lost his integrity. He went through trials. I mean, lose, lose all your wealth and your children. There, there, there might be a tendency to lose your integrity. And yet, no, because a man of integrity... What he is outwardly is what he is inwardly. Then he is struck personally with boils, and it says he scraped the boils. But notice what his wife said. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Which means what? He even went through all that physical suffering and held to his integrity. Lost everything and yet held on 
because what he, he was the real deal. Job was the real deal. What was driving him wasn't wealth, wasn't family, wasn't health, wasn't prosperity. That's not why he served God. He served God because he loved God. And, that, and that, that's why we go before the table, Lord, that, you know, our hearts should be in unison with him, that our, our love, and I think we sang, uh, our, we, should, uh, uh, we should proclaim our love loud and strong. I like that, loud and strong. Now, to keep your integrity, it takes effort. Remember, Paul said, I run, I fight, I discipline my body so that I might not be disqualified. Now, now you say, well, why are you talking about integrity when it comes to Corinthians? Because remember, the false teachers that were in Corinth were attacking Paul's integrity. See, they were saying that he's a charlatan, he was out. He, he was leading the church for money and power and prestige so he could have special privilege with certain people. He was doing it for sin. You know, he, he wanted to have certain favors with certain people. He was sexually immoral. You know, it was just all about him. In other words, they were accusing him of exactly what they were doing. And, it, you know, sometimes the best defense is what? A good offense. So they were the ones that were the charlatans. They were in it for the money. They were in it for prestige. They were in it for the power. But they were accusing righteous Paul of that. And so really all of 2 Corinthians, and we looked at that extensively last week, but all of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself, continually going back to defending himself. But in this one little passage in, verse, in chapter 5, he's going to actually give the motivation of why he is defending his integrity. Do you get the point? See, some people will accuse him of saying, well, see, even if you open your mouth to defend yourself, that's pride. And he's going back and saying, listen, I want to tell you why I'm defending my integrity and why I have it in the first place. Why? Because again, well, this is what he said in chapter 7, a couple of chapters later. He said, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Why did he say that? Because that's what they were accusing him of. I mean, can you imagine the viciousness of, here the Apostle Paul, sacrifice, 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 went to Corinth, established the church, taught the church. Now he's moving on because he had his, you know, the missionary journeys. And these false teachers come in and just, just, uh, just blaspheme his name and his God and basically just, just throw um, just all this stuff, all this garbage on his reputation, just trying to destroy his reputation. And Paul writes back and he says, no, he says, I, am, I have walked with Christ, I, walked with, I am walking with Christ and I continue to walk with Christ. And now he's going to give his defense. So, so let's look at it. If you haven't gone there already, again, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 9 to 7, uh, 15. Let's just read that. It says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men. You might want to underline that little part. We persuade men, because that's like the key. He's saying, listen, we persuade. We are being, I'm going to actually tell you why I'm defending my integrity. So we persuade men, but we are all well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. 
For we do not commend ourselves against you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. That's the false teachers right there. They boast in appearance, not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So in this, you're going to see about six or seven different things. And it's kind of a two-edged sword. He's going to tell you both why he's defending his integrity, but then you can also back away and say, but this is how I can walk in integrity. In other words, what he's saying is his defense is also motivation for each one of us to walk in integrity. The first one, and again, he's saying, I, I, I persuade, like I said in verse 11, I persuade men. That's the, that's the key thought. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to persuade you by writing this. And he says, I'm, I'm persuading you that, that, that we are all well-known to God. That means that word well-known or made manifest means clear, stripped bare, okay, laid bare. Uh, all facades are taken away. In other words, what is he saying? God knows. <laughs> Let me, let's just remember this. God knows. Don't take this if you're walking in sin. I mean, in Corinthians 11, he even says this. That some of you sleep. Some of you, God actually struck some of them down because they took the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Don't, don't play around with the table. Don't play around with God. But see, what he, but then he's saying, but, but in your consciences, we're also well known. He, he's, he's begging them, listen, you know me. I was with you. I taught you. I founded the church. I'm not trying to promote myself. I'm trying to promote truth because this eternal truth is critical for your eternal life. So he's begging them to, begging them to, uh, to believe that he is a man of integrity, that the word he preaches is God's word. So let me give you them right in a row. Verse 9, the first one we see that his goal was pleasing the Lord. He said, listen, I'll tell you why I'm walking in my integrity. Because I have an audience of one. Right? Why? Because his goal was pleasing the Lord. We make it our aim, our goal, our target, whether present or absent. What? What? To be well-pleasing to him. That's Jesus Christ. You know, Corinthians, you're criticizing me like I'm a charlatan, but I'll tell you what, I am walking in integrity, not to try to prove it to you, because I make it my aim, my goal, to be pleasing to Christ. I'll tell you what, Character is, is what you are when no one else is watching. And your integrity will be either destroyed or built up in that moment, right? But the thing is, no one else is watching. That's not a true statement. There is one watching. Well, tri- three person. The Trinity's watching, right? I mean, what should, what should drive your integrity, your wholeness? In other words, what you are internally is what you present externally. Well, the Lord's watching. That's the first major motivation. His goal was pleasing the Lord, and he knew that he had the audience of one. God is one. Number two, his anticipation of the judgment seat of Christ. That was the second major thing that, you know, I stand the straight and narrow. Why? Because someday I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ. And look at what it says. For we must all appear. That, again, is the same exact word. 
uh, that we saw where it says uh, well-known. It means to be laid bare. We're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ if you're a believer. Now, if you're not a believer, you go. it's the great white throne judgment. But here it's uh, Paul the believer, and he's saying, and at that point we're going to receive. So he says, I'm anticipating my reward. That's why I walk in my integrity. That's what motivates me to be a man of integrity. Number three, his reverence for the Lord. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, again, that word terror is phobos, phobos. We get our word phobia, fear. Well, for, uh, for the unsaved, they, do, they, they ought to fear our God, right? Because God, to them, is a judge. And ultimately, if they do not put their faith and trust in Christ and they die, they will go to, first of all, Hades, and then ultimately, after the great white throne, hell. They should fear. But for us, that also can mean this. And I believe that for Paul, it wasn't the fear, the terror, the paralyzing fear of, of, of the Lord. It was, it was reverence. It was awe. There should be an awe in our heart as believers. A, a worshiping heart that says, I do not want to displease Christ. And that should, that should hold our integrity straight, Right? What does Proverbs say? The fear of the Lord, that's the Old Testament word fear, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to hate evil. And we should hate evil. Therefore, as we go before the table, we should be looking at our lives, judging our lives. Lord, because it says if we don't, if we judge ourselves, then we don't have to be judged by him in a more severe way. But that's what kept Paul. And so he's bringing this up to the Corinthians because the false teachers have, have told the Corinthian church, listen, don't trust this guy. And, he's, and, he, and by the way, he's not writing to the false teachers. He's writing to the church. He's begging them, listen, I'm persuading you because I have the fear of God. I awe. I'm in awe and reverence to the Lord. Number, number four, his care for the church. That also kept him on the path. Second, verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves to you again, again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. Now, the idea of boasting is the idea of having confidence in his, in his spiritual integrity. I, I'm going to give you the opportunity, but, but again, he's saying this because he's saying, listen, you, you're the one. I'm leaving it in your hands because I care about you. This is the great thing about Paul. He's not doing any of this selfishly. He's not doing it for selfish motivation. Sometimes people lead for selfish, many times I think they lead, maybe in the church, lead for selfish motivation. He's saying, listen, I care for you. I want you to believe me because that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Those are the false teachers. They boast in appearance, but not in the heart. There again, they were the real hypocrites. The real hypocrites are accusing the man of integrity to be a hypocrite. <laughs> I just keep going back to it. It's like that is so predictable. So Paul's defending himself because, again, if he is rejected and the church goes with the false teachers, then the unity of the church is destroyed. The growth of the church is destroyed. The evangelism of the church is destroyed. Because who's going to, you know, why follow, why follow a bunch of people who who uh, are a bunch of hypocrites. So lots at, at stake. How about number five? By the way, some of this is review. Some of it I'm just 
But, but you kind of get the point. See, each one of these we can go back to and say, Lord, are you the, is in my heart I have an audience of one? Is that what's keeping me on the path of righteousness? Or is it maybe Bill Baker will find out about me? See, what keeps me on the path of righteousness? Is it because someday I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ? Is that what's the motivator? Is it really reverence for the Lord? Is it that I care about the church of Jesus Christ so much that I want to walk pure because if I don't walk pure, I can't minister effectively to you? See, that's how it should be in our life. See, that, those are the motivators. That's what should be, that should be what really is driving you to, to have a, uh, uh, a, a walk of integrity. How about, look at this fifth one. This is an interesting one because it kind of, kind of sounds kind of odd. His commitment to God's truth or his commitment to the truth. Because in verse 13 he says this, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Well, I think he's, I think he's contrasting a couple things. See, when, he, well, when you're preaching the truth, sometimes you almost sound like you're insane. Okay? Why? Because there is passion. And truth is not negotiable. Therefore, there's a, there's a stiffness to it. There's a hardness. Um, you know, and I think what it was is, I think because of Paul's passion, he, he proclaimed truth. And what was he proclaiming? That other, all other gods are damned. There's only one true and living God. There's only one way to God. That's through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you see how, how stiff that is? Like in a world that had all kinds of gods. And, now, and, and, and by the way, when he was saying it, he was proclaiming it loud and strong. And there is no, there is no discussion. You know, and they were probably saying, boy, he's just really kind of rigid. You know, doesn't want to give any, doesn't want to give any. Because the thing about the Greek culture in Rome, you know, they're sitting around talking philosophy and what do we get, you know. And here's Paul and saying, this is the way it is. You don't believe this, you go to hell. That's passion. In fact, the word beside ourselves means to stand outside of ourselves or you could read it this way, out of one's mind. What they're saying is, Paul, you're out of your mind. And you say, well, why? Just because he proclaimed truth? Well, remember what John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist? He called them the brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Later in Matthew, it says this, he has a demon. See, he was passionate about truth. What did they, he's, a, he's full of demons. He has a demon. Why? Because he was, he was inflammatory as far as how he was judging those around him. He was saying, listen, if you don't come to the, the Savior, you're damned. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Only him. I think preachers sometimes are thought to be like that. Oh, you're just too passionate. You're too hard. You, 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 you're, not, uh, you're not nice. <laughs> Remember Jesus, it says, they looked at him and he says, you have... And, and he has a demon. Same thing about the Lord. Said so the same thing about the Lord. You have a demon. In, in fact, keep your hand in there. Go to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. Because this is kind of interesting. And, and then I'll try to explain what I think is going on, the, the complete part of this. Acts 26, verse 24. Oh, 
well, look at verse 23, that, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, remember, in the Roman culture, there was no life after death. There was no resurrection. So now look at what he says. Now, as, as, um, as he was thus made, and, and now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. You're insane. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. By the way, he adds that, most noble. You know, like, I'm not insane because I'm at least saying that you're noble. Most noble Festus. Uh, but speak the words of truth and reason. So, so what was going on? Paul was making a very clear case for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that the Jews and Gentiles would be saved and he said, you are going mad. You're much learning. You, you're, you're, you're going down the path of nonsense. There is no resurrection. Why? Because he was proclaiming the truth with zeal and with passion and with conviction. And you might say, why? Why was Paul speaking that way? Because as Corinthians 4 says, he knew that he was a steward of the mystery of God. See, he had a message to give, and that message was clear. And, and, and but the word messenger, uh, the one word messenger literally means like server. The idea is this. We get the truth. By the way, this is true of all of us. We get the truth, and we're only called to serve it. You don't change it. You serve it. And you should serve it with zeal and passion and conviction. And sometimes the world looks at you and say, you're out of your mind. Why? Because you're so strong at this. Can't we just get together and get along? One of the stickers that drives me crazy, it's a sticker about this big, and it has all these symbols of all these world religions. So you have a bunch of false religions in the midst, and you have Christianity in one of those. No, there is only one way. There is only one true God. Allah is false. It's, he's a, he became from a demon started that whole thing, right? Would you agree with that? Would you agree that a false religion, it came from Satan? See, now I know, right now I can say that with freedom. Nobody's going to come and shoot me. But in a couple of years from now, who knows? But see, to say that, people will look at you and say, why can't you just get along? Why do you have to be so passionate? Why do you have to have the zeal? Why do you have to say things like that? They just create all kinds of problems. Because you have to remember, truth does not... Truth divides if the people are not on the same page, right? It doesn't always unite. Now, that was what was happening with Paul. But now look at the second part. See, they, the false teacher was saying... Look at, look at him. I mean, he's like a man out of control. He's so passionate. He has such zeal. But then look at what Paul says. If we are of, of sound mind, it is for you. Ah, but sometimes, many times, the pastor, the teacher, the Christian, yeah, he's proclaiming truth, but then the person says, you know, I've got some real questions. And the sound mind means gentle. And takes time and patience. And I'm going to explain this to you piece by piece. And you know what? If you don't get it the first time, I'll be back to give you more truth because I want to make sure you get it. So, yeah, sometimes you proclaim it and it just irritates the person in the crowd. But other times, but listen, but, but you know me? If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Sound just means self-control. It means that I'm able to give you piece by piece. Because I'm not speaking to the trial. I'm talking to you. 
and I want you to get it. So maybe you could say it this way. One is hot communication. One is cool communication. It's like 2 Corinthians 10 later on in the book. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by my meekness and gentleness of Christ. See, it's that type of idea. Pleading, meekness, gentle. But see, how does that have to do with my integrity? Listen, I'm not out of my mind. Because when I stand up to speak truth, Paul says, listen, I'm giving to you what God said. But look at my life. I also spent many, many, many hours and days and months with you, teaching you of sound mind, gentle, meek. That's all got to do with integrity. I'm not out of my mind. I'm, I'm just proclaiming truth and I'm wanting you to get it. How about the sixth one? Verse 14. We only have two more. Sixth one. Is it six? A, B, C, D, E, F. So yeah, six. Um, Someone asked me that a while back. You always say the number, but you have the letter. Okay, whatever. But you get the point. This is the sixth reason why he walks in his integrity and the sixth reason why he is defending his integrity. Because of his gratefulness to the Savior. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Some of your versions say controls us. Again, though, though, Paul, so, though Paul has love for Christ, right? This is not what he's talking about here. He does have love for Christ, but this is, no, no, I am, I am being controlled by Christ's love for me. Not my love for Christ, but Christ's love for me. That's what's controlling me. And since Christ loved him savingly, he wanted to be certain that nothing hindered his ability to serve him. I'm going to defend my integrity because I love him so much I want to serve him, but I can only serve him if people truly believe I'm a man of integrity. Now think about the love of Christ. And we won't have time because I'm running out of time. But think about the fact that it is secure. The love that Christ has for you is secure. Romans chapter 8, Paul asks this question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness? I mean, he goes on and on. He says, yet for, uh, for your sake we are killed. In other words, we might die for your sake, but does that separate us from your love? We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, powers or things present or things to come, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that Christ has for us is secure. Absolutely secure. So Paul is just, I want to serve him. Not only that, it's sacrificial. If you go throughout the passages, some of these are very familiar with you, like Galatians 2.20, just the last piece. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself. See, he didn't give his time, his money, his giftedness. He gave himself. Same thing is said in Ephesians 5, that to the church, he gave himself for her. That's the church. And, and it was such an a, a unbelievable sacrificial love that Ephesians says this, that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. You can't get your... See, like, 
because I was trying to get my arms around it. I mean, do I love Christ? Yes. But in a continuum, it might be like this. But, but then I came across Ephesians and says it's surpassing. It's something that we need to meditate on. So you get your arms around it, but, it, but then you can get your arms around it even tighter and tighter. You, you continually will grow in your appreciation for Christ's love for you. That, I think that's what he's getting at. And here he says, and it, it compels me, it controls me. When he's shipwrecked, when he's being beat, when he is dying daily because he has threat on his life. What's, Paul, why are you doing all that? Is it the reward? Well, the reward is there, like verse 10, but I'll tell you what really controls me is the love of Christ. Question, does the love of Christ control you? Or maybe you haven't even thought about it for a while. No, it, it should be a controlling factor. The enormity, the scope, the extent. That's why Paul, you know, it drove Paul. It drove him to be a living sacrifice. It drove him to be sacrificial in his time. It drove him in, to be sacrificial in his giving. All the types of in his use of his spiritual gift. It just drove him because he knew that Christ loved him. And therefore, he loved Christ. Now, again, if you just... Let's look at the second part. It says the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. One died, all died. Well, one died, all died. See, if in the Old Testament, remember what happened there? It says uh, of the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. I think it's Hebrews 10. See, in the Old Testament, this animal sacrifice never took away sin. But they kept sacrificing morning, night. I mean, Passover, they said there would be hundreds of thousands of animals being slaughtered. The blood would come off the temple mount into that little stream, and it would just, it would be literally full of blood. But what were they getting? What were the Jewish people getting as they even crossed over that stream? Never to take away sin, and, and that the sacrifice of the animals had to continue. Because that is how bad it is when it comes to sin. Something needs to die. Right? Something needs to die. I say something. Ultimately, the someone. And, it's, and that's what we find right here is the someone. Because the next part, again, he, one died for all. One died for all. That's the new covenant. Like Hebrews 10 says this. Uh, for by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. Christ offered himself to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9. That's the, that's the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. In fact, it's perfect because it, that's exactly where we're going to be celebrating. Now, it says for, okay, because we judge thus that if one died for and the word for can, uh, can mean in behalf of, but the, the, the main idea is this, in the place of, in the place of, Christ died in my place. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He took our curse. But then he ends this little, this little sentence by saying this, and if one died for all, then all died. Now, I'm going to read you a paragraph because I want to make sure I say it exactly right. This is not original with me, but because who is the all that he died for? See, then all died. Who's the all? 
It is crucial to understand the identity of the all for whom Christ died. The phrase, one died for all, or then all died, uh, if it stood alone could imply that Christ died for every person who ever lived. But Paul clarifies this meaning by adding the phrase, then or therefore all died. All, so who is this? He did not say all were dead. Now, we would understand that because Ephesians says we all died in, uh, uh, we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. But that's not what he's saying. He's the, he didn't say that all were dead. He was not talking about a condition, however, but an event. Believer, the believer's union with Christ in his death. In other words, we were spiritually there at the moment Christ died. And you see that, by the way, in, Ephes- or in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Together the two phrases define the all for whom Christ died as the all who died in him, Romans 6. Through faith in him, Romans 3.24, just, just, just as all who are in Adam, I mean, remember when Adam sinned, all became sinners because we all come from Adam, so all became sinners because of the sin, so also all who are in Christ, those who, are, who believe savingly become righteous because of his death. So he said, I, you know what, what drove Paul? It wasn't just that he died, but he died for him. Now again, it goes back to election. Because he was chosen, when Christ died, literally, he was with Christ spiritually. I'm going to be careful. I mean, he hadn't been born yet, but the point was, is that's the all. So you can't say then all died as being all were dead. That's not what, the, that's not what it's saying. Or, or let's go to First Timothy chapter 4. You don't have to go there because we're closing down. Because It says this, First Timothy 4. Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. What do you mean he's the Savior of all men? Oh, what are you, a, a universalist, Paul? You mean when it's all said and done, everybody gets saved? Well, he's the Savior in the sense of common grace. He, he lets the sun rise on the, on the uh, evil and the just evil and the good, and he he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. I'll tell you where you see common grace most. That a sinner can sin, and God does not send him to hell that immediate moment. Right? So that's how he is the Savior of all. Especially of all men. Especially of those who believe. See, 1 Timothy 4.10, especially of those who believe, means eternally and spiritually. That's, that's saving grace. So there's common grace to all man. I mean, you have unsaved relatives and friends who get up and they have breakfast and they get married and they have children and they go on vacation to, uh, to Florida and they have a great life on them. And that's all common grace because what should have happened is they should have been dead, eternally dead from the time that they committed their first sin. That's common grace. But then there's also saving grace. That's those who Christ died for, that he died in their place. And that just overwhelmed Paul. And it overwhelmed them to this degree. And I have to defend my integrity because if I don't, I can't serve him out of a great, grateful heart. I want to serve him, but I need to be able to do that with those who say, yes, he is a man of integrity. In fact, it leads right into verse 15, and we're done here. His final 
uh, motivation is his desire for godliness. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What does that do? It just drives Paul to say, I want to live for him. See, that's the main, that's the point I was just giving. I want to live for him, but I can only live for him if I defend who, who, that I'm walking with him. I can't serve him if I'm not walking with him. And if you guys think I'm not walking with him, you're not going to listen to me. I can't serve him then. So he says, I, I'm serving him with my whole heart. I'll leave you with one last verse. It's, it's in Acts 20, uh, 24, and it really shows where, where Paul is at. Because this is, this is the sacrificial nature of his sacrifice, I mean, of his service. It says this, And, and seeing now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Um, he says, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm bound in spirit. In other words, I have to do this. Why? I know there's going to be dangers. I know I could even die, but I have to do this because I'm bound in spirit. The Lord is just pushing me to do this, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await. How about that one? Hey, I want to send you to the city, and just let me tell you, chains and tribulation await. So are you going to be sacrificial, Paul? Or maybe you should just go in a different direction like Jonah. But none of these things move me. None of these things. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, that's compelling. That's the control I'm talking about. Paul says, listen, I got the ministry from the Lord. I love him so much, but it's not just my love for him. It's his love for me. And I'm just driven now. And I know I'm going to Jerusalem. I know there's tribulation and change. I might change. I might even die there. But you know what? I'm being driven by the love of Christ. Question is, a couple of just very simple questions as we go before the table. Again, what's your IQ? What's your in- integrity quotient? Are you a woman of integrity, a man of integrity, a teen, a college student? I see a bunch of college kids. Sometimes when you go to college, you kind of throw it off and you hey, I'm going to do my own thing. Hey, the Lord's watching. And if you're going to go before the table, make sure you go in a worthy manner. Right? Make sure that your life is pure before him. And if you've sinned and there's hypocrisy and duplicity in your life, make sure you confess that before you go before the table. But the second thing is also this. And Lord, you are the Lord. And I want to give my life a, 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 a service for your purposes. Living sacrifice. Is that you? Or are you just saying, Lord, I want you to make my life real easy. Comfortable. Consistent. No, Lord says, you're mine. I'm the master. You're the slave. So is your life a living sacrifice before the Lord? Because really, as you partake the table, that's what you're pro- proclaiming. Lord, I'm yours to be used because I am the servant, you're the master. Let's bow our heads and ushers come forward if you would.